sermon this morning. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You, Lord, just for the opportunity to set aside one day, a few hours, just to focus solely on worshiping You and on Your Word. Lord, I pray this morning that You'll be with all of us here, that You'll uh, just protect our hearts and our minds, that we'll be able to just focus on Your truth, on Your words being preached here this morning. Lord, we're asking You to show up. God, we, we know You're always with us. We, we sang it. We, we read it all the time. But Lord, I just pray that even we can feel Your Spirit moving this morning and that we'll just know the love that You have for us. So God, I just pray if there's anybody here this morning that needs joy, I pray that the Holy Spirit will give them joy. For those who need comfort, I pray for comfort. For those who need to hear the truth, Lord, I pray that they hear the truth and the truth will pierce their heart. And they will come to You to know You, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. So Jesus, we love You and it's in Your name we pray. Amen. I know we just started getting back into John, right? And it felt like the ball was moving again. And, and, but I'm going to invite you to actually turn to Hebrews chapter 10 instead. Uh, because of Advent time, we're actually going to be focusing week by week on a different Advent theme. So as you're turning there, hopefully you're there or close there. Hebrews 10. I just want to say happy belated Thanksgiving. I hope and I pray that you had a great time with family. I know sometimes the holidays can be great. They can also be stressful. Sometimes they could also be sad. Um, so I just pray that you were able to take some time and some opportunity to thank Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And we'll be looking at Jesus, our living hope this morning. And I don't know about you, but... Uh, I forgot my water bottle, but that wasn't my point. I don't know about you, but... I don't know if your families have any sort of Christmas traditions or any sort of Thanksgiving traditions. There's something that my family does, and we never like verbalize this to each other and made it an official tradition. But every between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that, that season, every year we, we watch March of the Wooden Soldiers, and when it's closer to Christmas, you have the, a Christmas story. All right, these are both classic movies from this genre of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I don't know if you remember or seen it, but in the Christmas story, it's a movie all about a young boy named Ralphie, and he's an adult narrating his life. And then he hopes, his one Christmas wish, his one hope is that he'll get a BB gun for Christmas. And I want to give a little bit of a pop quiz. Who knows what specific BB gun he's looking for? Not just a Red Rider. The official Red Rider carbon action two-handed or 200-shot range model air rifle. Right, so everybody, throughout the movie, he shares his Christmas wish with, with his teacher, with his parents, with his friends, with Santa Claus at the mall, and they all tell him the same thing. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> Eventually, it comes to Christmas morning, he opens up all the gifts under the tree. Ralphie is now visibly sad and disappointed because something he hoped for didn't happen. He didn't get the gun. And a little later in the morning, his dad pointed something out to him. And throughout the movie, his dad's kind of like a grouch that you're kind of thinking, I don't know if he's really the type of person that shows his love by how he treats others, now he talks to people. He's kind of the, the disciplinarian of the family, like they're afraid of him throughout the movie. But later, his dad points out and says, Ralphie, I think there's something over there behind the desk. You, you, you must have missed this present. And with great urgency, and you can see him putting one, you know, one and one together here, he goes over, he opens the gift, and there it is. 
the Red Rider gun that he was hoping for, that he was wishing for. And the main punchline of the movie, the very first shot that he took outside, what happened? He shot his eye out. Not, not literally, but he shot himself and it ricocheted hit him back in the eye. And here's the point I'm getting at. All of us here this morning, we've all used the word hope. Right? I know we have. We use it all the time. I hope it doesn't rain. I really hope there's no traffic because I don't want to make a two-hour drive to, to Pennsylvania seven hours. I hope there's enough food for everybody. Right? Maybe you're cooking Thanksgiving. Or maybe this every Sunday. I hope the Jets win. I'll just leave it there. Okay. Right? We've used this word, hope, and we've turned it. The world has really turned it into this, wishful thinking. And when it comes to biblical hope, that's not the case. There's a difference. Biblical hope is defined as this, joyfully waiting with full expectation. Right? I'll say it again. Biblical hope is joyfully waiting with full expectation. It's expecting that what has been promised will come to pass because who is making the promise? God, the creator of the universe. And when we read over and over throughout John's Gospel, Right, I'll, I'll plug in, I'll, I'll go, we'll go back to John for a second. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus claims a lot. He claims to give life, give eternal life for those who put their faith and believe in Him. And that's what gives us hope that when we die physically, which this is an alarming statistic, 10 out of 10 people die. I don't know if you're ready to hear that this morning. Right? But when we physically die, what was Jesus' promise? Eternal life. Life with Him forever and ever and ever. Worshiping Him. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the different themes of Advent. Maybe this is new to you. Maybe this is, we've done this as New Village Church forever. But we have hope, peace, joy, love, and then Jesus Christ. And the point of Advent is to remind us of the time when God entered into His creation as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, John 1.1. And that we have hope, peace, joy, and love all because of what God has done for us. Not because we earn it, not because we get it or deserve it, but because of what God has done for us. So this morning, we're not going to find ourselves in the traditional Christmas stories found in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Instead, hopefully you're there, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And maybe you're like, Hebrews, that's a little weird, all right. Hebrews chapter 10, and if you have your notes, we're going to be focusing on three points this morning. And point number one, we're going to see the inadequacy of the law. The inadequacy of the law. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, For it is impossible... It is impossible for the blood of the bulls and the goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So we, here we have the author of Hebrews, which we're not 100% sure. Some people think it might be Paul. Some think it's Peter. Some think it could be Barnabas or it could be Apollos. We don't know. But we know the author of Hebrews is writing after Jesus Christ's death on the cross, but also before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. So you have this time gap of about 35 AD to 70 AD. Scholars think about 50-ish to 60-ish AD. And as we read these verses this morning, it's clear that the author is making a clear point. This is what he's saying. Stop putting your hope in the law. Stop putting your hope in the old covenant, in the old. Stop. In these verses, he explains why the law is inadequate and why it's foolish to think that the law can save you. The first thing, I guess letter A under point one, the law is a shadow. In verse 1, did you catch that? It says, For since the law is, uh, has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The word for shadow here it literally translates to hazy outline. When we see someone's shadow, I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but you can't tell what someone looks like based on their shadow. Maybe a vague description, but you can't tell what their face looks like. You can't really tell what someone's wearing if all you see is their shadow. Why? It's hazy. It's, it's not specific. It's a little vague. So we have, it's a vague, hazy outline. That's what a shadow is that reflects. It portrays something that's real, but shadows in and of themselves are not real. And what I mean by that is a shadow can't hurt you. Unless you're watching Peter Pan. Right? But you can't interact with shadows in the real world. Shadows can't hurt you. You can't hold a shadow's hand. I like one theologian said this, you can't live in the shadow of a house. You need a house. <laughs> and in that same way, the author of Hebrews saying, the law, the old covenant, right? these sacrifices, they portrayed something. It was a picture of what would come. It pointed to access to God, to full salvation, but it never was intended to bring men directly to God. And how do we know that if we just keep reading? In verse 1 it says this, It can never, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Those who lived under the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the law had to continually offer sacrifices year after year after year after year. It was something that was done habitually because no matter how many times you could sacrifice, it was only good until you sinned again. Think about that. No matter how many times you sacrificed, it was only good until you sinned again, which demanded yet another sacrifice unto God. And that leads to letter B under point one here. We see that the law, in the law, sin is only covered. Sin is covered, it's not taken away. In verse two, otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. 
So we have these sacrifices under the old covenant, under the law. They would only cover sin. They never removed it, which is what we need. Which is what we needed. The fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over is evidence from the author of Hebrews that it did give some sort of temporal relief, a covering, but ultimately the sin was still there. Each year, it would also be a constant reminder to the people of their sinfulness before the Lord. And the guilt remained between them and God. Right, so as they're sacrificing, what they're, they're hoping and they're praying for the mercy of God, but they're also reminded of their sinfulness. That why am I doing these sacrifices? Because it's needed. And in Psalm 51, David cries out, and this is what he says in Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, from my sin, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So we see under the law that sin is temporarily covered but the heart is never dealt with. The, 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 the guilt, the sin, it's still there. Which leads to letter, letter C. Sacrifices did not transform hearts. Sacrifices in the law did not transform people's hearts. Verse 4, for it is impossible. Let me say that again. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how much animal blood was spilt, their sin still remained. The law had no way of reaching inside someone to reach inside their heart and to change it. It didn't matter if there were five sacrifices or a million. One was not enough. Two was not enough. Three, and you, you go on a whole list. <clears throat> no one was saved because they won God over with all their animal sacrifices. And if we look back to Psalm 51, David understood what he needed. He needed God to cleanse his heart. He didn't have to go and do it like 20 more sacrifices. He could have, but he's praying out to God, God, cleanse my heart. God, take away my sin. He cries out for God's mercy and His love. And as we talk about the Old Covenant, as we talk about the law, animal sacrifices, you might ask yourself, because I was, I was like, why? why? Why did God establish this if it was never meant to be permanent? Why would God direct the Israelites to do this if it wasn't the ultimate goal of what He wanted? Right, why would God demand this? A couple reasons. It pointed to the salvation that would come. It pointed, it made God's people expectant, joyfully waiting and hoping and praying for their Messiah. So it points to Jesus. The second thing is it reminds them of the penalty of sin. I'll be honest with you. A lot of times, we all, including myself, we have a really low view of sin. Yeah, what I did was bad, but it wasn't that bad. You know, compared to this person, I'm, I'm, I'm an angel. However, we see in the Old Testament, the reminder of the penalty of sin is what? Death. Blood. Blood has to be spilt. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. Because God is holy and we have sin, and that's serious. And the third reason is it provided a covering, a temporal covering for their sin. Sacrifices covered their sin in the immediate Temporal judgment from God. It didn't transform their hearts, but it did temporarily cover. So ultimately, you have God, and, he, and God established this point to the coming of Jesus Christ. 
Right? So the old points to Jesus. It points to the new. Who, who Jesus would be the once for all sacrifice whose blood would take away our sin. He, reach, he would reach down and by the blood and, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, what? Dead hearts come to life. And as I was reading these verses, all about the old covenant, the law, the sacrifices, the sad reality and the conclusion I came to is I think the world thinks about God the same way the Israelites did under the old covenant. And here's what I mean. Instead of continual animal sacrifices to be brought before God, I think the world tries to bring their self-righteousness to God. Right? As a way to justify or a way to gain some sort of merit from God or forgiveness from God. Maybe if I give a little bit more money to charity, then God will have to let me into heaven. Maybe if I volunteer at that homeless shelter, hey, God can't get mad at me for that. Maybe if I live an obedient life to the law and I always go 54 and a 55 mile an hour you know, speed limit and I stop at every stop sign and wait three seconds, maybe if I do everything perfect according to the law and live a moral life and I love everybody, then I hope God will love me because I love everybody. And the sad reality is that is not biblical hope. That's just wishful thinking. That's just blindly hoping that when you die, you're like, please, please, I hope I did enough. I hope I did good. I hope God's pleased with me. And in the next few verses, what the author is going to do is he's going to transition and make the point that the new covenant, that in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ does something that the old couldn't do. That Jesus does something that the old can't do. In verse 9, he makes the point that the first, the old covenant, the law, the Mosaic law, the first must be put away with so that the second, Jesus, can be established. You can't live under two covenants at the same time. And that's what the author is arguing to the people that he's writing to in Hebrews. The first has to go. And here we see the transition to the new covenant. And we could call this the covenant of grace. And here is where all of our hopes lie this morning. If you are in Christ, this is our hope. He is our hope. So number two in your notes, Jesus Christ is our living hope. We just sang about it, but I want to read about it. In verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected, I'll read it again, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The hope of all believers lay in the promise of Jesus Christ. What we just read, his sacrifice has done what the animal offerings could not under the Old Covenant. Here the writer is pointing to why Jesus makes the old obsolete. Why the old has to go so that Jesus can come in. Because why? It's better. It's perfect. So number, or letter A, really, believers are sanctified by the sacrifice of Jesus. So what's the promise of Jesus we see here? That we're sanctified. All those who are in Christ were sanctified. We have been permanently made holy. Now let me stop for a second. It's not talking about us being perfect. 
right? Because the thing is, when you come to Christ, every Christian you see, no one is perfect besides Jesus. We all sin. I sin. If I point to you, I'm not going to, but if I point to you, I'm sure you're going to nod your head, or if you don't, your wife will, or your husband will. Of course, we all sin. But I'm talking about, and I think the author is getting at positionally. It points to our position in Jesus Christ. That what happens, He cleanses our heart. He gives us not the heart of stone that we just read, but the heart of flesh. There's sanctifies. He sanctifies us. It's through His death, His blood, that we've been set apart. That's what the word sanctified, it literally means to be set apart. That we're set apart by God. We stand guiltless and blameless before the Lord. That by the cross, God does what animal sacrifices could not do. That God reaches inwardly and He touches our hearts. He removes the heart of stone. He removes our dead heart and what gives us life. The promise for all believers, all who have faith in Jesus, is that by His death on the cross, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That we are now sons and daughters adopted into God's family. That's the promise. That our hearts have been transformed and we've become a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And the next thing we see is we see a comparison between the old and the new. I don't know if you caught that. Look at verse 11. And every priest, right, this is the old, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And But now, verse 12, the new, but when Christ offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. If you notice the language, and there's a comparison, on the old you have multiple priests, yet on the new you have one priest, Jesus, one mediator, Jesus. In the old you have the priest standing. And why is that? Because the work of the priest in the old was never done. They were always busy, constantly working in the temple, constantly going on behalf of the people, making sacrifices. Yet, in the new you have Jesus sitting. It's the imagery of what? His work is completed. As Jesus is on the cross, He says, it is finished. In the old, you have repeated sacrifices over and over and over, yet the author says, on the new, you have the single sacrifice. And then in the old, it says, never takes away sin, which we talked about already. And then in the new, it's the promise that Jesus Christ removes our sin. So when God sees us, for us who are in Christ, He doesn't see us as sinners who need His wrath and judgment. He sees us as being covered by the blood of Jesus, that at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf. He took the penalty for my sin and for all of our sins, for those who are in Christ. So in the old, you have repetition, you have temporary, you have over and over and over again, yet in the new covenant, in Jesus Christ, you have a single offering, a single sacrifice, Jesus on the cross, which is permanent and effective. And as I read these verses, here's my conclusion. Praise God. Seriously, praise God for Jesus Christ. He's the only one that is worth putting our hope in. Why? Because He's worthy. That Jesus defeats His enemies. He defeated them and He's victorious over sin and death. We don't worship a dead Savior, but a living one. He has destroyed His enemies and He has won the victory over them at the cross. And the last point in this, in number two here, 
we see Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Verse 14, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now let's jump down to verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What does that mean? Jesus' sacrifice is the only offering that's needed. There's no continually or follow-up or anything that needs to be done in addition to what Jesus did on the cross. We don't have to go into our backyards and make burnt animal offerings or, or animal offerings to the Lord. If you have neighbors that do that, don't go over there. There's, there's something a little strange there. We don't have to keep what bringing this before the Lord, shedding blood before God. Why? Because Jesus paid it all on the cross. It's His blood that's perfect and effective. It was finished. It was His final cry. So for us who are being sanctified, that's the believers, those who are in Christ, there's nothing else we need to do. If you remember from last week, we don't add anything to our salvation. We don't add anything because why? Jesus did all the work. Also, since Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for us, there's a complete forgiveness of sin at the cross. When we come to Jesus and we believe in Him, again, nothing's needed, nothing's added. The death of Jesus has removed sin forever for those who belong to Him because His perfect sacrifice and His perfect forgiveness at the cross. We are justified. That means we're made right. We have pure hearts before God. And when we die, we don't stand condemned in our sin. I, don't, I want you to hear that. When we die, if we're in Christ, we do not stand condemned in our sin. As the world searches aimlessly for who or what to put their trust and their hope in, as Christians, we look no further than the cross. It isn't money, it's not friendships, it's not love, it's not family that we put our hope in. All those things will either fade away or eventually disappoint us. But if you, and if you're here this morning and your hope is not in Jesus, please listen to Paul's words in Romans 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If your faith is not in Jesus, you have not been justified, you have no peace with God. And that's dangerous. You're in trouble. Verse 2, through Him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. So Christians, believers here this morning, we rejoice in the hope that Jesus has given us. We have peace with God. We have eternal life with God. Even in the midst of trials and struggles, we cling to the promise of God that He has given to us in His Word. And the opposite is true if your faith and hope is not in Jesus. You do not have peace with God. You will not have eternal life with the Father, with God, in heaven and with Jesus. And that in the midst of your trials and struggles, all you have is wishful thinking. All you have is, well, I hope this doesn't last too much longer. I hope someone can help me. Whereas Christians, we cling to the promise that God has for us in His Word. We trust in Him. 
So we saw, so far we saw, I know it's been a lot, we saw the inadequacy of the old, of the law. That the law can never fully save. The law can only cover, not take away. That had to be over, sacrifices repeatedly over and over and over again. Yet we have in the new, our living hope, Jesus Christ, once for all sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed. That was the one sacrifice. And now we get to number three in your notes. And we're going to end on this. The faithfulness of God. The author keeps going. In verse 15, this is what the author says. We see God's faithfulness. We, we read this. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And what I want to say, and I want this to be clear, everything that the writer of Hebrews has brought up so far, all the truth that he's, on the theology that he's mentioned, it's not a new revelation from God. He's not sitting there writing and, and this out and saying, oh, God just spoke to me and God just said this. Right? He's not sitting there making it, or hearing it from the Lord and writing it. Rather, the new covenant is a fulfillment of a previous, of a prior revelation from God hundreds of years ago. What he quotes from is Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. So at the time when Hebrews was written, the promise of God has already been fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus came and died. And he's encouraging those who are reading, those who are going to be listening to this letter, to not live under the old. Why? Because Jesus is the new and He's already accomplished it. The, 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 the revelation, the prophecy in Jeremiah has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's been fulfilled by the death and the resurrection of Jesus and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Us, in the here and now, we live in the time that was prophesied in Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit, God, has come and what? Has regenerated our hearts. Has given us a new heart. Through the working and power of the Holy Spirit, we're born again. We saw that in John chapter 3. That God has reached down and He's transformed our hearts. And then verse 17. I love, I love this. It's a clear promise. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When God looks inwardly at our hearts, for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, He doesn't see us with a heart infected by sin. A heart that's tainted by sin. A heart that needs judgment. A heart that needs, what? Condemning. He sees in us a new heart that's been spiritually transplanted, implanted by the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus. And as Christians, our hope for eternal life, our hope for peace, our hope for joy, all comes from our faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is powerful enough to give us the life He promised. And here's what I'm getting at. God's Word can be trusted. I know Nick is doing a whole Sunday school class on that. right? The Bible, God's Word. God's Word can be trusted. As Christians, we believe that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and that He dwelt among us. We believe that He lived a sinless life and was crucified on the cross. And that three days later, He rose again. 
We believe that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as the ancient Israelites, those who were living in the Old Covenant at the old time, they looked forward with hope, with great expectation, joyful expectation of what God has said will come to pass. We live in the fulfilled promise of it. Have you ever thought about that? We live in the fulfilled promise where we look back to the cross where Jesus died. And through His sacrifice, He has removed the sins for those who believe in Him. Positionally, we are justified. We are made righteous. Not because of our own works, not because of our own deeds, not because, hey, look how, look how good I am. Look how much God has to love me because I'm good, I deserve it. No. But because how good Jesus is. How perfect Jesus is. We live with the hope looking forward to the day that when we pass from this life that we enter eternity, that we enter heaven and worship our Lord and our God forever and ever. That's the joyful hope, the joyful expectation that we're living. So again, we live with hope. We don't live like those who don't know Jesus. They have no ultimate hope. Their hope is just their fingers are crossed, their eyes are closed, and they're, they're thinking, and I wish, I wish, I wish. Kind of like Ralphie with the BB gun. I wish, I wish, I really want, I hope I get it. Whereas Christians, we are expectant. We are joyfully living, even despite our circumstances. Let me be honest. Being a Christian doesn't mean life's going to be great. Being a Christian does not mean that life's perfect and, hey, me and my spouse never fight and my, my family's perfect and, and I never go through trials, I'm never going to be sick. That's not what the Bible says. The promise is that God is there with us and we know that He's there with us and we know that, that anything that we go through doesn't mean He loves us any less. So as Christians, my, my brothers, my sisters, New Village Church, we live with this hope. And that's my prayer that in this Advent season, Right? We start with hope. Why? Because I think it, that hope is going to lead us to joyful living, to loving others, to remember the peace that we have with God. Let me pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that as we just read, that was just mentioned in Your Word, that Jesus was the once for all perfect sacrifice, that at the cross, His blood was shed, that no more blood has to be shed for atonement of sins, that Jesus paid it all. So God, we're thankful for that. And we, I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here this morning that's struggling with hope, maybe that's something that they've always been fighting for, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that You'll lead them to Your Word where they can read and be reminded of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. A hope of eternal life. A hope of peace with God. And hope that You love us. And You'll always love us. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this last song, as we leave this church this week, I pray for continued Gospel opportunities. And what I mean by that is, Lord, I pray that You put us in situations where we can tell others about You by what we say, by how we act, by how we treat others. And Lord, we just want to continually thank You and be reminded of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that He paid it all. So Jesus, we love You and we thank You. It's in Your holy name we pray this in. Amen.